It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. If you think about building a structure, going to put up a house or an apartment complex, what do you need? Well, you need some important elements. First, you need the earth below it, capable of supporting the weight of the building, so you don't want to have it on shifting sand. It's probably not good to have it on the edge of a cliff, right? Then you need to have, upon that earth, footings or a foundation that is capable of supporting the weight of the structure of the building, upon which then on that foundation goes the frame. Inside the frame goes things like plumbing and electrical, water, sewer, the like. On top of the frame go the walls to provide warmth and coolness, a roof over top to provide protection for the elements. Then in the interior, you want things like carpeting, heating, air conditioning to make the home comfortable. And then things like a kitchen to prepare meals, a bath, sleeping quarters, living quarters to make it habitable. But if you think about it, in all that entire process of going from no structure to a completed structure capable of supporting habitability or life, it all starts with one thing, a plan. Blueprints. My guest tonight, I think, would suggest that as we look at the amazing structure that we call home, called planet Earth, inside our galaxy, traveling about here in this amazing Milky Way, that in order for us to arrive at a place of habitability, on planet Earth, there had to be a plan. The book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. Joining us today is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe, best-selling author who mentioned quite a number of number one bestsellers to his name. We're pleased to have join us today, Dr. Hugh Ross. And Dr. Ross, always a delight and an education to have you with us. Paul, thank you for inviting me. You know, we think about habitability, and, and uh, I, I think the example is you cite inside the pages of Improbable Planet that the the correlation between the capacity of, of creating a structure that allows us to put up a building and finally arrive at a place where we can have it and enjoy it, provide it uh, its serviceable use to us, uh, is very much uh, equal to equating life's sustainability features of Earth, aren't they? Well, they are, and what the book documents is the amount of design and fine-tuning you need, not just for life, but for plants and animals, and not just for plants and animals, but for human beings, and especially for human beings, where billions of us can live on the planet at one time and develop a technology where we can hear and respond to the redemptive message, the real reason why the Creator created the universe. And what we see is that the level of design goes up exponentially with each step. And so it actually begins with a Bible study I did where I noted that every creation text links the doctrine of creation with the doctrine of redemption and how the Bible states that God actually uh, starts his works of redemption before he creates anything. That would imply that everything that God creates is for the purpose of redemption. 
and then launched a three-year study on my part through the scientific literature to put that to the test. And indeed, that's what came out, is that literally every component of the universe, of Earth, of Earth's life, and every event in the history of the universe, Earth and Earth's life, plays a critical role in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings in a short window of time. And of course, not only playing a critical role, but it, it gives um, every every step, every aspect, just as I suggested with uh, what you would need to create a structure that would be habitable for us to enjoy, uh, for, for livability. Uh, the same thing is true of planet Earth, that this is not just all coming together by accident. You speak of um, some of the features of planet Earth, for example, that are necessary, that are essential to human life. Things like uh, the geographical, the chemical, atmosphere, biological, astronomical features of this planet that make it not only unique, but as you suggest in the book, um, going from simply the ability to sustain complex life to even having a reason why it's capable of sustaining that life. Yeah, I'll give you one example. I mean, for billions of humans to live on the planet at one time, we have to be living in an ice age cycle where the planet cycles between 10% ice coverage and 23% ice coverage, where the period of the cycle is 100,000 years. And this is the only time in Earth's history where we've had such a cycle. Moreover, to have billions of people develop technology, we have to be living in the warm interglacial period, which is 10% ice coverage, that follows the most severe ice age in the entire ice age cycle. And you've probably heard of things like climate warming and climate stability. What I document in the book is that we're living in a unique time window in the entire history of the Earth. The past 9,000 years, we've seen extreme climate stability at the optimal temperature for human civilization. Why? Because seven cycles in the variation of Earth's orbit and a rotation axis all came together to open up this unique time window. We've been in 9,000 years. At most, we can sustain it for another 1,000. And so God is giving us this brief time window in which we can take the redemptive message to all the people groups of the world and have them respond. And from a biblical perspective, this universe is a pathway to a far better universe. Dr. Yoon Ross, our guest today, a look at his new book, Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. The new book, by the way, just published by Baker Books. And uh, yeah, you're thinking about gift giving perhaps already. Um, Thanksgiving's just a couple of weeks away before you know that soon after. Of course, it'll be Christmas time. And uh, a book like this can not only be great for any skeptic, but anyone who wants to understand sort of the deeper story from the scientific reasoning uh, behind not only how things came to be, how man came to be, but most importantly, some of the reasons why. We'll get to more of those reasons why as our conversation with Dr. Hugh Ross continues and our look at Improbable Planet. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation continues with best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross. His latest book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. Dr. Ross, in some respects, is this book sort of the sequel to um, your previous book that, that opens up the subject matter, why the universe is the way it is? Yeah, to some degree it is. I mean, that book was basically targeting how God designed the universe to eliminate evil and suffering. This book goes on to talk about how God designed the earth and all of its life so we can understand 
and respond to uh, his purpose for creating, namely to redeem us into a new creation, a new realm beyond this one. There are others out there, um, I think of the Carl Sagans of the world, that would suggest as we look at the layers of complexity that we're going to have you go into this evening, that all of this in relationship to Earth's capacity to support life is just simply an amazing coincidence. What of that notion? Well, often they're not looking at uh, the number of coincidences. Yeah, you could say maybe four or five of them are just coincidental, but when it adds up to hundreds and even thousands, and that's what this book documents, thousands of different aspects of the history and the components have to be fine-tuned to make possible the existence of billions of human beings on the Earth. A few, maybe. Thousands, no. It's, it's clear evidence that God is controlling things. In fact, they argue, and I said this in front of scientific audiences, if we actually look at science, from a redemptive perspective, we have a more efficient tool for rapidly advancing scientific progress. I mean, if indeed everything that we see in creation is for the purpose of redemption, that should give us a tool for discovery. And the book basically documents the success of that approach to science. And, of course, what's critical about uh, this research that you've done is not only do you demonstrate that there are thousands of factors involved uh, that need to be in place, but also the the tight measurements, um, the, the tight confines to which um, something can swing from being compatible and habitable to suddenly inhabitable. I mean, for example, uh, we have temperatures across Earth, some of the highest temperatures in, in the deserts that reached 115, 120. 20 degrees. I suppose if we saw that ratchet up by 10 or 15 more degrees and saw that take place in more places across the planet, suddenly planet Earth goes from being habitable to inhabitable pretty quickly. And a lot of that has to do with just simple things like the, the, the tilt of the Earth, doesn't it? Well, it does. And there's a chapter in the book, Chapter 7, where I talk about habitable zones. Because you've probably heard that a number of my fellow astronomers will say, well, there's 40 billion planets in, our, in the habitable zone in our Milky Way galaxy alone. But all they're looking at is water habitability. Today we know of nine distinct habitable zones. So, for example, in addition to the water habitable zone, you got the ultraviolet habitable zone, the astrophere habitable zone, uh, the atmospheric electric field habitable zone. Now, we do know of 3,600 planets outside of our solar system. But of all the planets we discovered, there's only one planet that resides in all nine habitable zones, and that's the one you and I are sitting on. And unless it resides simultaneously in all nine habitable zones, the planet is not habitable. So they're really being unfair then. It's almost as if they're picking and choosing when they suggest, uh, based on some of these calculations, that there could be up to 40 billion possible habitable planets uh, in the Milky Way galaxy. But it doesn't take into consideration all of these factors suggesting that the notion that Earth can have a life-supporting twin is probably unlikely? That's right. They're picking the most generous zone and ignoring the ones that are the most restrictive. I mean, water is the third most abundant molecule in the universe. The universe is really wet. So the fact that we find water in a lot of places is no big surprise, but there's eight other factors that need to be taken into account. Moreover, the structure of the planets. You know, we have eight planets in our solar system. It was actually born with ten. 
And unless those 10 are all fine-tuned exactly the way they were or are, you cannot have advanced life on planet Earth. And of course, what's fascinating about this, as I suggested in the opening remarks, that as you make in the book, the comparison between uh, the building of a habitable planet to the building of a habitable building, that uh, in both cases it starts with having the essential construction materials at hand. And even the balance of that is very unique to planet Earth, is it not? It is. There's a chapter in the book on dirt where I basically encourage people don't take dirt for granted. Our planet has got the only dirt that allows you to grow uh, food grains. I mean, you know, I don't know if you saw that movie about the Martian that showed Matt Damon growing potatoes on Mars. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Well, the soil of Mars has got 60 times as much sulfur as Earth does. You're not going to be able to grow anything on Mars unless you bring soil from planet Earth. Fascinating. And, of course, with that idea, not only is it essential that you have the right construction materials, but there's another factor here, uh, and that is anybody that's going to build a building, let's say it's for, uh, uh, you know, uh, living purposes, you want to make sure it's in the right neighborhood. Nobody's going to put up a beautiful uh, three- or four-bedroom home with a swimming pool and put it right in the middle of an industrial park that's surrounded by nothing but uh, light industry and large warehouses. And I guess the same thing is equally true, in a sense, in relationship to not just that we exist, but where Earth Earth is situated in relationship to, uh, what should we call it, the rest of our, our neighborhood here in the Milky Way galaxy? Well, in order for advanced flight to be possible, our solar system must be born in the most dangerous part of our Milky Way galaxy, relatively close to the center of the galaxy. That's so we can get enriched with sufficient heavy elements from exploding stars. But it's essential we get kicked out right, at, right after we get enriched. And we see about our sun is it got kicked out from the most dangerous place in our Milky Way galaxy and situated in the safest place in our Milky Way galaxy. And that happens to be the only place in our Milky Way galaxy where we astronomers can observe the entirety of the universe and directly witness the cosmic creation event. So God not only put us in the best possible place uh, for civilization, he also put us in the best possible place to make scientific discoveries. And there's also something that I learned fascinating inside the pages of your new book, Improbable Planet, and that is this notion that as much as suggesting that there is up to 40 billion possible habitable planets that discounts a lot of critical factors, then, too, isn't it true that this notion that uh, there are other galaxies that could support life? For example, you make an A-B comparison between the characteristics of the Milky Way galaxy versus the Andromeda galaxy. Tell us about what some of those critical distinctions are. Well, often we look at the Andromeda galaxy and call it a sister galaxy because of how much it looks like the Milky Way. But when you look at its spiral arm structure, it's warped and it's distorted. Why? Because it suffered a collision from a fairly big dwarf galaxy just a half billion years ago. And the warping and the distortion is such that it eliminates the possibility of advanced life in that galaxy. And there's actually 200 different features of our Milky Way galaxy that must be exquisitely fine-tuned for advanced life to be possible. You you have to have a spiral arm structure. The spiral arms have to be extremely symmetrical, and they have to have the right space between the spiral arms. The galaxy's got to be the right mass. It needs to have a high ratio of dark matter uh, to ordinary matter in it. 
and it's got to be relatively free of spurs and feathers between the arms. And we have studied thousands of other spiral galaxies. Ours is the only one that meets the characteristics that advanced life needs. And if you take a look at those two differences, if, if the characteristics that you observe of the Andromeda galaxy were present in the Milky Way galaxy, that would then suggest that life could not be sustainable on planet Earth inside the Milky Way? You might build a bacteria that could exist for a few months, but you wouldn't have plants, animals, and you certainly wouldn't have human beings. It just becomes that uh, hostile, in other words, to the it's ability of sustaining hostile. life. Everywhere we look in the universe, we see hostility for advanced life except on our planet Earth. And, you know, after a while, you look at this, and as much as nobody looks at a fantastic building, you look at the Pyramid uh, Transamerica building in downtown San Francisco, you take a look at the Sears Tower in Chicago, look at the um, Empire State Building in New York City, and you've got to think to yourself, that took forethought, that took engineering ability, that took planning, that took science, that took not only uh, a sense of vision, but also a sense of the end game, a sense of what the purpose would be. And as we're learning today from Dr. Hugh Ross, there's more than just planning behind the presence of life on Earth, but in fact, purpose, too. We'll talk a bit about that as well, and when we continue with our conversation, the new book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home, newly published by Baker Books, available through the usual suspects. Get it online at Amazon.com. You can also order it directly through Reasons to Believe, simply by going to Reasons.org. That's Reasons.org. We'll come back to more of our conversation with best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross, as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we're learning today, even when somebody like Carl Sagan suggests that millions of life planets must exist, um, suggesting that there is nothing unusual or extraordinary about planet Earth, Dr. Hugh Ross is proving the contrary to be true, that there are complexities about this planet that make life here possible that with uh, just a variety of changes here and there would suddenly make its sustainability impossible. Toward that end, you also talk in the book, as you sort of lead to this um, logical conclusion, Dr. Ross, that if Earth is capable of sustaining physical life, as it's demonstrated down through its history, um, we've certainly have seen also then the ability of it to sustain physical life along with mind-possessing life. But you take it a step further. You suggest that not only can the planet sustain physical life and mind-possessing life, but also spiritual life. Tell me more about that. Yes. I mean, uh, the, the whole purpose for God creating is to bring about a redemptive relationship between him and the human species. And we're told in the Bible that he intends to bring a countless number into that relationship. And the Greeks could count up to a billion, so he's talking billions. So that implies that the earth must be designed in such a way to support billions of people at one time. And that only began to happen 9,000 years ago. So only for the past 9,000 years has that been possible. And we also notice that uh, he salted the earth uh, with all the resources we need to make possible the technology we need to take the good news of redemption to all the people groups of the world. Everything is targeting purpose. 
I would argue that the Earth and its inhabitants, all of its life, all of its history, screams that there's purpose for humanity and actually targets us to exactly what that purpose is. And so I'm amazed at all the new scientific discoveries of the past two years. I mean, one thing we discovered is that uh, in order for plate tectonics to start and be sustained, you need life to be created at the same time and to be sustained throughout that time. Life requires plate tectonics, plate tectonics requires life, and all that plate tectonics and life is necessary to provide us with the resources so that billions of human beings can hear and respond to the redemptive message. Is this eventually going to force those that come at this purely from a scientific standpoint and wish to go no further, um, that as we look at the progression of all the laws of physics and their impact on planet Earth, natural selection, its impact, ultimately coming to the slow realization that for there to be laws, for there to be natural selection, there must be a source for all of that? Well, I think so. I mean, I was at a conference once where atheist scientists were speaking and they all insisted that there was no God, but they also insisted that we human beings have purpose, we got value, uh, we have some kind of eternal destiny. And it's like none of that makes sense if there is no God. But if God designed this universe uh, so that we did have purpose and ultimate destiny, then it all makes sense. But what that revealed to me is that we human beings, no matter how hard we try, cannot deny that within us, we have purpose, we have meaning, we have value. It's written upon our hearts. I mean, it tells us that in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I find that even committed atheists have a very difficult time denying that. Yeah, some of the um, some of the remarks made by even um, Richard Dawkins over the last year or two are beginning to suggest that there's a bit of thawing, <laughs> even of his position. Yes. Well, I mean, what I admire about Richard Dawkins, he says science can test religious ideas. I agree with them on that, and I'm eager to try to use science as a tool to test competing religious ideas. Part of the science also um, beginning to put some holes into Charles Darwin's theory, and I asked that question because Darwin, of course, always held that there was a presumption of development and transformation of development of life on the planet that was slow, it was smooth, it was gradual, it was contiguous. But you argue in the book that that just simply isn't so. Well, I do. In uh, Chapter 12, I talk about what's called the faint sun paradox how the sun today is 20 to 25 percent brighter than it was when God first created life. But light can only tolerate about a 2 percent change in the solar brightness. And we notice is that uh, we see in these mass extinction and mass speciation events that life is wholesale removed from planet Earth and shortly thereafter replaced with completely different species of life. But we notice about those replacements, they're more efficient at pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. So as the sun gets progressively brighter and brighter, the greenhouse effect of Earth's atmosphere becomes progressively weaker and weaker, keeping the temperature on the surface of the Earth ideal for life. But my point is this, only a mind that knows the future physics of the sun and the Earth will know which light to remove and what new light to replace that remove life with. And it's actually stated that way in uh, Psalm uh, 104, that it's a property of all light to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the earth. If he's not constantly removing light 
and replacing that light, then quickly the sun's luminosity makes it impossible for any life to be sustained for the rest of the history of the Earth. So it's a classic example. If we integrate across the scientific disciplines, that's where we see that the holes in the Darwinian paradigm are not just in one discipline, they're in all the disciplines. And, and fascinating, even as we make that comparison to something as simple as a seed falling to the earth and dying and then giving forth life, that even right. in the most simplicity uh, of, of creation, it's there. Well, one thing I talk about in the book is that the grains that are crucial for feeding our planet, they only existed in the very recent history of Earth. It literally took billions of years of preparation of previous life forms to make possible the existence of rice and wheat and oats and millet. And without that, we couldn't feed our population. So if we string all of this together, Earth providing essential construction materials situated in the right neighborhood, the uniqueness of our solar system, all of this is sort of builds layer upon layer, um, we begin to slowly draw the conclusion that all of this has to come together with a plan, and if a plan, there must be a architect, there must be a planner, and as you suggest at the conclusion of the book, ultimately that leads us back to the notion that God himself planned and prepared Earth as our home. He did, and he particularly targeted us human beings. It's not just a God creating a home for life. He wanted a home where there'd be sentient beings that could come into a relationship with him. All of it exists for us human beings. Ultimately, what would you conclude is, is your intent in terms of the, the takeaway um, for readers that look at this book, either because they're trying to understand more from a scientific viewpoint or see the deeper correlation between uh, the creator and the creation? What's the big takeaway in, in, in the way you've approached writing this book? Well, the universe has to be exactly the size that it is. Every star, every planet, every comet. Uh, every bacterium, every life form, every event in history, the universe and the Earth and Earth's life has to be exactly the way it is for us human beings uh, to exist and to develop the kind of civilization we need to discover God and come into a relationship with Him. The takeaway I hope people will realize is that we human beings are incredibly valuable in the sight of the Creator and that He has a purpose uh, for us. He wants us to discover that purpose. So I end the book by basically challenging people where there's a purpose for humanity in general, but God has designed a special purpose for every individual human being. The purpose he has for me is different from all the other seven and a half billion people on the earth. I need to find what that purpose is and fulfill it in the few decades that God has me here in this creation. And, of course, what's so wonderful about the conclusions that we can draw at the end of Improbable Planet is that this um, spinning sphere upon which we call home is far too complex, too detailed, and too involved to simply have happened by accident. And if created, then therefore a creator. If designed with purpose 
then certainly there must be a designer and a plan in place. The book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home, newly released by Baker Books. You'll find it available through Bay Area bookstores as well as directly through Reasons to Believe at reasons.org. That's reasons.org. The book again called Improbable Planet by our guest tonight, best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Ross, as always, it's been a delight and an education to have you with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And again, the book available through reasons.org. That's reasons.org. Improbable Planet by Dr. Hugh Ross. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's a topic that we've discussed before. Um, Some, I think, troubling statistics that ought to catch the attention of all of us within the organized church in America, and that is surveys. They've been done by a variety of groups. Probably the most recent, most reliable, in my opinion, is that done by uh, George Barna and his organization that finds that an alarming percentage of young people who um, grow up in church, attending Sunday school, they've been baptized there, they've Uh, been active in children's church all through their young adult years, and then they reach their later teens, high school, largely collegiate level, and it seems that once they graduate from high school and move into college, they move into the dorms and out of the pews. And the question is why? What's going on in the lives of young people today where they feel perhaps that the church is not adequately addressing their needs. Well, a new book has been written that helps to address this very issue that takes a look at some key strategies that's not necessarily, you know, uh, fancy entertainment programs, things of that sort, but rather an attempt to sort of um, take a look at the church and most specifically how we can do a better job at not only keeping young people in the church, but allowing church and most importantly Christianity at the core to be relevant in their lives. Joining me now is one of the co-authors of a new book called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, in addition to being co-author, is Director of Strategic Initiatives at Fuller Youth Institute. He is, by the way, a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary and has also served as a ministry director with Youth for Christ and also with YWAM. And Jake, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Hey, thanks, Craig. It's good to be with you. When we uh, talk about solutions, of course, it, it helps to get a bit of a handle on ascertaining what the problem is. Uh, you know, everything from vacation Bible school, children's choir, youth church, all of this. Um, youth have always been a important component within the church, and I've also seen studies to suggest that uh, there's a greater likelihood of people continuing um, uh, in their faith for the entire length of their life, um, the younger that they make that decision or commitment to Christ. So we know that youth outreach and ministry is critically important, and yet in recent years there has been this trend, this trend of young people reaching a certain age and saying, okay, I'm no longer compelled to go by my parents, I no longer feel compelled, and they're done. Why? 
Yeah, exactly, Craig. In many ways, as you said, it's it's oftentimes, unfortunately, into the college dorm and out of the pews. And as you cited George Barna, the research from their organization often points to the fact that 40-50% of those young people who grow up in the church end up drifting from God and the faith after they graduate from high school. Um, there's a lot of other negative statistics we could look at in a regarding the church and where the church is at. Pew Research had released uh, some results recently where 78% of the U.S. adult population used to identify as Christian. Now that's 71%. We could look at other negative statistics like uh, 18 to 29-year-olds make up 20% of the U.S. population, but they actually make up only 10% of U.S. churchgoers. Uh, so, as you indicated, lots of bad news. There's, there's a lot that we could point to of what's not working, but that's where we're so excited about this new research in the book, Growing Young, because we decided, what if we looked past the bad news? What if we looked beyond the problems and the struggles? And what if we actually studied churches that are thriving in their ministry to teenagers and young adults? And in doing so, um, and you've looked at churches across across the country, across denominational lines, you've looked at uh, churches that were mixed, churches that were uh, predominantly minority, churches that were predominantly white. Any trends that you see, any commonality with those churches that seem to be doing the quote-unquote better job at keeping or retaining young people? Yeah, very much. And before I mention a couple of those, one of the things I I do want to mention were some of our surprises of what we thought we might find as a commonality that we, in fact, didn't find. So as we began the study, we wondered if we might find that churches that are large would be more effective with millennials, with teenagers and young adults, or maybe it's churches that have a big budget or it's churches that have been recently planted, or it's churches that have just this off-the-charts cool quotient, or uh, they, you know, their worship is like a rock concert, or they've got a laser light show and fog machines, or a hip, cool young pastor. And we can with confidence say from the churches that we've studied, uh, it was not about any of those single things that led to effectiveness with young people. Interesting. One of the things that strikes me about this, and I mentioned this in my introductory remarks that we used to do, historically a good job is the church in providing uh, places for young people. But I wonder if there's a degree to which maybe that has backfired on us. And I I pose that question because um, one of the things certainly, and if we compare, for example, young people that get involved in gangs, uh, typically what do we see? We see young people coming from broken homes, uh, single parent families, divorced families. We see young people who largely will get involved in gangs because there's not only a sense of community there and a sense of power, but a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling like you're in a a way in a surrogate family. And I wonder if we have come to perhaps in this day and age made a mistake by putting so much emphasis on in a sense, isolating young people because it's children's church, it's youth ministry, it's young people's outreach, that somehow we want them separate and apart from what the rest of the adults do, that in a sense, have we, rather than embracing them so that they get a sense of being in in that greater community, rather isolated them? Yeah, Craig, I think you're very much on to something that in many ways lines up with our research. Uh So what, what we've landed on 
uh, as kind of in a nutshell, our study, we've landed on six core commitments that we think are essential for the whole church. And I say whole church because not just the children's church, not just the youth ministry, not just an independent young adult ministry. These are six core commitments that are vital for the whole church culture to buy into. And uh, one of those six, in fact, is something very close to what you mentioned. We've come to call it that these churches prioritize young people and their families everywhere. So they're prioritized in every area of the church. And while that sounds uh, intuitive in some ways, or even obvious, what church would say we don't prioritize a younger generation? We found that there's often a strong difference between uh, the rhetoric or the language churches use, perhaps their intentions to prioritize young people, and uh, what it actually looks like to prioritize young people well in practice. Well, and I guess there's also a difference between prioritizing versus ghettoizing. Very much, and unfortunately what we've often done, and I want to emphasize that, that this has been done out of the best of intentions uh, in so many of our churches. So it's not been done out of neglect. It's not been done out of ill will. It's out of a desire that we want to reach and engage children, teenagers, young adults well. But as you say, we've often segmented them off in their own corner of the church. If, if a church has a large enough budget, perhaps we've built them their own youth room. We've hired them their own staff member as a youth pastor. The problem is that many teenagers, they might go through an average year of their ministry calendar and hardly ever interact with adults who are outside of their age range. Well, the other issue, too, is, and I always thought this, when uh, that part of the service, typically very early on, came and the children were, quote-unquote, dismissed to head off to their own church. And I thought, I wonder how many of them um, quietly wondered to themselves as they're sitting in youth service, what's going on back in the adult service that the adults don't want them to hear? Uh, I, I mean, you know, there, there's always that sense that, well, you're trying to block me from something or, or, or leave me out. And, uh, you know, children see enough of that when parents say, well, you can only go to certain types of movies, you have to be in bed at a certain time. We understand that part of this is good parenting, but part of it, I think, lends, lends itself to that sense of, of being um, not only isolated, but almost, and, and again, I have to concur with you at, at this level, Jake, it's not done with malintent, but I think the unfortunate consequence is that some young people, as a result, may feel as if they're being treated like they're second-class citizens. Yeah, and if I can share an example from one church that stood out in this area in our study, it's it's First Baptist Southgate. They're located in South Los Angeles, and uh, they're a predominantly Latino congregation. Uh, originally, the church was predominantly Spanish-speaking. And what happened in this congregation is the parents, the grandparents, had, had moved to the United States, spoke exclusively Spanish. Well, as they had children, as they had grandchildren, uh, those children and grandchildren were growing up in an English-speaking environment in Los Angeles and spoke almost exclusively English. So as they got a bit older and they were looking at their worship service, the church was faced with this decision of... <laughs> We can keep our worship service in Spanish so that the grandparents, the parents, understand what's happening, and we could start a separate English ministry somewhere else or on the side or in another part of the building uh, in order to minister to the children, the grandchildren in the church. 
But as they reflected on that, they just realized that wasn't who God had called them to be as a congregation. And they reflected, if we were to do that, it's only going to drive a wedge between generations. Uh, And so, you know, bless them, the adults, the parents, the grandparents in the church said, even though this is going to cost us something and something very important to us of our language, we are willing to go about the process of integrating young people into our service, of letting English be a portion of each of those services. So we saw situations when we visited this church where you had uh, a grandchild and a grandparent, and the grandparent did not understand parts of the service that were being given in English, but was willing uh, to go there and was willing to do that because of his deep love for his grandson, and the church as a whole embraced the young people in that church. So uh, just one example of what that looked like in practice, and often what it costs both generations. But yet, that sense of coming together in unity and not driving a wedge, but rather um, embracing uh, is obviously, as you're suggesting, makes a big difference. There's another dynamic to this that I want to talk about after the break, and that is with so much emphasis in our culture on young people and youth. And let's be honest about it. As you get older, don't you look back? Come on now. I mean, I'm Jack Benny's age plus a number of years, and yet there's this sense that, gee, if I could only go, gee, if I could only go back to my 30s, if I could go back to my, well, I won't go any further. We want to recapture that. We have a sense that there's something about vigor and vitality and energy and enthusiasm that that is inherent to to being younger. And yet, with so much emphasis on such things, it seems as if there are at least in areas where the church, rather than embracing that and giving credence to that and acknowledging that, instead somehow demonizes it. We'll talk about that next. Our conversation today with the co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, our guest, back with more as Lifeline continues. <music> 